Father God, we praise your name. We are in this autumn season which has beauty in many ways. We get to see, smell, and hear the sounds of autumn around us in northern Wisconsin. It can be captivating. But what's even more beautiful is you, Jesus. And we praise your name. Your goodness is around us. And we thank you for this day. Guide us, we pray, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Take a moment and greet those around you. Good morning, everyone. It is Family Celebration Sunday. Some of you are like, what just happened there? That's right. We'll explain that in a moment. But at this time, we're going to have Joan come up and share some announcements. Good morning. I'm Joan Niedemeyer, for those of you that don't know me. I am the Operation Christmas Child uh, Project Leader for the Rice Lake area. And I have announcements for Maranatha. We have youth wreath sales going on today and this is their final day in the lobby. So stop and get a wreath. Otherwise, you can order online. There is a QR code in the bulletin. Apologetics Conference is in Eden Prairie. That's coming up on November 10th and 11th. Um, to register, you can um, check with the Soul Garage, and information on that is also in your bulletin. Moms group meeting Sunday, November 12th, in the Fellowship Hall from 6.30 to 8 p.m. The details for that information is in the bulletin. Salvation Army bell ringing. Um, you can sign up to help. There's a QR code and the website. All of this information is in the bulletin. The bulletins can be found on the table in the lobby. Um, so if I've missed anything, please, please check that. Um, we have a video for Operation Christmas Child. We have very unique transportation modes to transport the gift boxes to the children. We have canoes, we have what we call a donkey car, and we also have trucks. And then we have humans that are carrying the gift boxes to different places. My name is Grace. I'm the logistics coordinator for Operation Christmas Child Namibia. I am responsible for ensuring that the gift boxes get into the country and into the hands of the children. When the gift boxes arrived at the port, inspection is done by the customs officials. We always prepare prayerfully so that the hearts of the customs officials are kind and soft towards the projects. Once the customs officials clear the gift boxes, then the gift boxes get to be released. Once the gift boxes are released, we load them onto the trucks. The trucks transport the gift boxes to the different regions. The regional teams receive the gift boxes and that's how the ministry partners receive the gift boxes 
and then they get to distribute the gift boxes to the children. So this whole process involves a lot of volunteers and it involves a lot of dedication. Our prayer request is for the safety of everybody that is involved in transporting the gift boxes, for God to bless them and for them not to give up helping us in this process. Good news, great joy. Um, those shoeboxes go a lot of places. And this lady was talking about logistics, and she's the logistics coordinator. It takes more than just a stamp on a box to ship, to ship a shoebox to these children. Um, we wanted to figure out how does a shoebox we pack in Rice Lake, Wisconsin, get across the world to the, cho to the child that God, ha God wants for this, for this to happen. Last year, our shoeboxes went to Zambia, Africa. That's 8,365 miles away. That's a long way to ship a shoebox. The suggested donation to ship a box is $10. But what's included when we put $10 on this box? It's not just a postage stamp. Um, first, the shoeboxes come to a collection center during National Collection Week. Maranatha is the collection center for the Rice Lake area. Last year, we collected almost 1,700 boxes. We put them in cartons. They go on a semi-truck down to Aurora, Illinois, and that's where each shoebox is processed. The United States has eight processing centers. Um, the processing center opens every single box to make sure that they can go through customs and that they have the proper items in them. They take out any items that are not allowed, um, candy, liquids, toothpaste, things that would hold up the boxes in customs. Um, next, they're put in cartons, and the cartons are put in shipping containers. The day that this shoebox is processed at the processing center, they will tell us what country these are going to. They go into the shipping containers, and then they're off on a ship, a train, a plane, and a donkey cart. We don't know. But the next person that opens that box is the child receiving it. Missionaries and churches partner with OCC, and their training is included in that $10. They train them for outreach events. Last year, they held 70,000 outreach events in over 100 countries. Children are invited to come to these events, and this is where they're given the greatest gift booklet. And these, are, these booklets are in their own language. So far, they have translated this book into 97 different languages. After the children hear the gospel, they receive a shoebox. Many times, this is the first time a child receives a gift of their own. And they only receive one shoebox in a lifetime. So it's not like these children continue to receive a shoebox every year for Christmas. They do only receive one that we're aware of. Our goal this year is to pack 750 shoeboxes at our packing party on November 12th. We have all the items ready to go, thanks to many of you who have donated 
toys, school supplies, and hygiene items. Just yesterday, I received 278 Beanie Babies, and I have 180 more washcloths and lots of notebooks. So I thank you all for those contributions. We do need the $10 for each box, and so far we have received donations and fundraising for over 560 of those boxes. So we're three-fourths of the way there. We still need $10 for 190 boxes. I have a table in the fellowship hall with more information. And uh, please help us ship those shoe boxes. I thank you for your support. And I ask that you continue to, to pray for these children that will receive the greatest gift of Jesus. Thank you. Pastor Tony. Thank you, Joan, for announcements and for leading that ministry. That's such a neat thing that we can be a part of each year. Uh, today is a special day for us here in that it's our Family Celebration Sunday. Ooh, and we, we have that as a tradition that we've been doing for quite a few years now. And it started um, with some conversations years back as pastors about how do we engage families together, how do we help uh, families disciple their kids. That was some of the heartbeat behind it. And one of the passages that was kind of the foundation for this is from Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so we walked through that passage years ago as a part of this tradition. And uh, the idea behind it is that we, we love families here at Maranatha. We value families. We value age-specific teaching. So we, years ago, this church invested in that building next door and remodeled it and spent a, whatever it was, a million and a half dollars to create a space that's uh, especially geared for kids and youth to grow spiritually. And that shows how much this church values investing in the next generation. And I've been uh, blessed by that as youth pastor here to have that special space. And, and so that's a value we have. We think there's a, a space and a, a place for age-specific teaching for children and for youth. And uh, we have adult discipleship groups that are age-specific as well. But we also value worshiping together as families, as an extended family, as a church family. We value having children and youth here in the service every week, not just on our, on our special uh, fifth Sundays, um, but on every Sunday that, that you can. We encourage you to bring your kids to be a part of worship service. If you can be a part of coming together and worshiping during first service, and then kids normally can go to uh, Sunday school second service, that we encourage you to do that. Even if it means it's a little bit louder and noisier in here because we have children, we, we value that investment. And it's not just for nuclear families, for those who have children of their own in that stage, but everybody is a part of this. Because we're all part of the church family. And so whether you are teaching Sunday school or you are uh, maybe sitting next to a family with little kids and you can help engage them in the service and, and help support and encourage those parents when their kids are making it a little challenging for them to, to get anything out of service. And so that's part of why we do this. Um, we believe that parents are the primary disciple makers of their children as this passage talks about, investing into your children, impressing the commands of God onto, into your children's lives. 
Um, and our role as a church family is to come alongside parents to support and encourage and equip them. And we want the youth and the children to know that this is their church. This isn't just for their parents here in this space, but this is for them too. We, we think about them when we prepare things and we, we try to engage them in how we uh, do our church service here as well. And so as part of that today, in a special way, we will have a, a kid's song a little later on that the adults will be encouraged to participate with as well. Um, and one of the the... Teachers for our Sunday school will be having a part of the service here as well. So we encourage families to uh, engage this morning, but engage every Sunday with your kids here together in the service, investing in them. Um, I think it's so cool when kids can see mom and dad um, engaging with the sermon, responding to God in worship, and, and then talking about it at home, having a conversation on the ride home or over lunch, where we're seeking as parents to apply God's teaching from his word and from our time in worship through song into our daily lives. So with that, uh, let me pray as we uh, begin our time together. God, I thank you for this morning and the gift that we have to gather together freely. We thank you for uh, guests and visitors, um, as well as the regular attenders who are part of our worship time this morning together. God, I pray that... Uh, during this special Sunday, that uh, we would continue to, to love you, to grow in our knowledge of you, to, to respond to your word proclaimed. And as we uh, sing some more songs as well later on, I pray that our hearts would uh, reflect back to you praise and honor and glory through music, through song, uh, and through all of that, that we would grow as a church family. We pray that the younger generations would know that that we love them, we care about them, we want to invest in them, uh, we want to create unique spaces for them, but we want them to be a part of what goes on here in this space, here in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings as we worship together as an extended church family. To God be the glory. Amen. I invite Pastor Cody. Thanks, Pastor Tony. If you could grab your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't know where that is, just go to the beginning of your Bibles. In your Bibles, there's a table of contents. It will tell you what page it's on. It's on page 882 if you've got a Bible like mine, but most likely you have a different Bible. All right, we have just finished our series in Philippians, where we went through looking at living for Christ. If you recall, we're kind of doing a large three-part series. We took time looking at the Gospel of Mark being a disciple of Christ, what that means, discipleship, and then Philippians, living for Christ, being a disciple of Christ, living for Christ, and then coming up in January, we're going to start the part three, the book of Acts, a witness for Christ. Today I want to look at the importance of training to live the Christian life. 1 Timothy chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. What I'm going to do is just briefly go through this. We're going to have different elements of of what we're doing here today. So let's look at verse 7. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Training for godliness. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wise tales. So here Paul is writing a young pastor. His name is Timothy. We talked about Timothy in the book of Philippians. Timothy's a great comrade and worker, co-worker with Paul in his ministry, in his God, proclaiming the gospel and missionary trips. Here he's letting him know, do nothing with all this senseless, foolish, reject all the foolish talk that's around you. And I tell you today, kids and adults, there is so much goofiness out there. I would encourage you to spend more time in the Bible than watching the news. 
There is so much other. Spend more time in what is true this here than you do on social media. There's so much out there that can sway you away. So there's many misuses of scripture. Some of them are heresies. Heresies are false teaching that can start up in the church. And often someone, someone will start something like, hey, I found something new in scripture. Or, hey, let's look at this. And ultimately it, it doesn't line up with the whole counsel of God. Stay away from heresy. Stay away from controversy. Stay away from legalism. We've talked a little bit about legalism in the book of Philippians. We'll spend more talking about legalism, what that looks like, and how it can be very dangerous for a church when we get to maybe Acts 15, when we look at that part. Stay away from any kind of rebellion against God. Instead, have sound teaching. And we at Maranatha are big on preaching the word. That's what we're known for. Often at some churches, they don't really preach from the word. They, they preach what, what sounds good to the ear. Or they, they give sermons that, just, that are a part of the trend of the day. And uh, just recently, one of my neighbors, uh, last week I was talking with them, like it was Saturday. And they're like, well, you better get home and get ready for your sermon. And I'm, I'm like, well, most of my sermons are done by Wednesday. So that way, Wednesday it's done, then Thursday I'll just pray about it, and then Friday I'll look at it again to make sure things are lined up, and like, oh, maybe I need to change something here. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it's, it's a later than that. But, but, and I said, you know, honestly, it's easy. And this guy c came from a church that's, that's a liturgical church where kind of they get, you know, sent from maybe Boston. You know, here's your liturgical calendar. Here's what you're preaching every Sunday. For me, I just follow the next verse or the next paragraph. We here at Maranatha... We stay in the word. So have nothing to do with godless myths and old wise tales. So we encourage you to learn the word. In fact, you hear me often say, keep your fingers in the word. Little side note, I encourage you, coming up, so it's November 11th and 12th, it was mentioned the apologetics conference. The youth are going to that. If you want to go to that as an adult, please talk to Pastor Tony. We would love to help you understand the word of God more as you converse with people. In fact, listen to Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Often I feel sometimes Christians can be very sharp and not gracious and be, be very condemning and not attractive. And I love this, where our minds should be thinking that stuff instead of foolish talk. In fact, one thing that we want to do at church here is we want to keep you grounded in the Word. When I prepare a sermon series, in fact, I'm doing this for the book of Acts, I like to be a couple months ahead of even where I'm going. So right now, even though the book of Acts will be starting in January, I'm preparing it, what we're going to be doing, how to lay it out, what's it going to look like. And I've got piles of books in my office. Sometimes I stack it up and I just get lost for, for hours in that. And so once in a while, I'll go to this thing called Bible Project. Have you heard of the Bible Project before? Some of you have, and I know that we, um, the youth group does that often. My girls will bring home a print off of a book of the Bible, kind of a layout of, of a good way to understand that. And just a few weeks ago, after we finished, after I kind of mapped out everything in Philippians, and, and I was like, oh, I should look at the Bible Project. So I watched the video, I'm like, oh, a lot of what they're covering is what we covered, obviously, in 
our study in the book of Philippians, living for Christ. So what I want to do right now is take, it's, it's a, you know, normally we don't do this, but it's a nine-minute video, just an overview. So this is a summary of what we have just studied in the book of Philippians. And I encourage you, as this is done, go home and look up different books of the Bible that the, that the Bible Project does. So here's a video. If you got a moment... Get a piece of paper out, get a pencil out, write down some of the ideas, and these are some of the things that we covered in our study. So take a look at this summary of what we just covered. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there, Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. 
Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution. But they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven. 
which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. So again, we here at Maranatha want you to learn scripture. And I encourage you, go online, look up Bible Project. They have, they have some books, they have some great stuff. Let's continue with verse 7. Instead of getting involved with foolish talk and foolish thinking and teaching, rather train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. One of the great books that I've read about spiritual disciplines, I have a picture up here, it's um, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. One of the lines is this, discipline without direction is drudgery. If you have no direction in your spiritual discipline, it will be painful work. Why do we continue to work and strive? It's so that we would be godly, more like Christ. We need to be more disciplined. Paul often uses this kind of terminology in sports analogies when, when he talks in some of his letters to others helping them train. An example is this. When I was a kid in junior high, we would go to school, but my friend's house was just a few blocks away. And for lunchtime, once in a while, we'd go to his house, mainly to play Atari. Kids, that was a video game. It had this little black box with a stick and one red button. It was awesome. And I enjoyed it because he would have Coke once in a while. I'd crack open the bottle, and it tasted so good. We would share a bottle. It was great. Once in a while, his brothers, he was the youngest. There was two other brothers. They would show up also. They would talk, and then they would start wrestling. Not like wrestling like brothers do, but they would wrestle because they were in the wrestling sport. 
And once in a while, they'd say, hey, Cody, you should get into wrestling. I'm like, I don't want to wrestle. I'm not a wrestler. I like volleyball and basketball. But they would say, okay, fine. We're going to practice on you. And they'd throw me to the ground and practice. And I'd be like, what? What's going on here? But gratefully, I was a lot taller than them. I would just spread out, and they couldn't do much to me. My, to me. And they would throw me around, and they'd be like, come on, wrestle. I'm like, I, I don't know the rules, but I'm just going to lay flat, and you can't get me. Let me show you two pictures, physical accomplishments in sports. You have to have discipline. You have to train yourself. You have to have consistency and commitment. Here's two pictures. See if you can figure out who, who's that top guy. Anybody know when he was in college? Pastor Tony, not the guy on the bench that maybe looked like Tony too. I don't know if he's benched or whatever, but that's Pastor Tony. And the next one, take a look at this picture. <coughs> Justin, I think they're here. So Justin and Tony, come on up. Right now, Justin is the wrestling coach at Cumberland, and Tony assists at the uh, sorry, Cumberland and then Cameron. So they are both not only wrestlers when they were in high school in college, but now they coach. So I've got a couple of questions for you guys. You want to grab one of the mics there? What did you do? Yeah, I'm, I've got to watch my back here. I'm going to make sure here. All right. I'll take you guys on. Here we go. All right. When you guys were in high school and college, what did you do to train? Did you have a training? Yeah, what did you guys do to train? What did that look like? A lot of sweat and blood. <laughs> uh, in high school, my brothers and I would usually go in before school and work out. Our normal wrestling practice is right after school for a couple hours. Um, it's amazing how much energy you can expend in, in that amount of time. But a wrestling room is, had a low ceiling, so it would get feel like 120 degrees in there. It was very, very warm and um, sweating, just working out hard, but lifting weights when, um, during the off-season as much as you could as well. So those are a couple things. I think the, the first thing that comes to mind, if you've ever watched a Badger football game, you know, Camp Randall, everyone thinks of that as the fun place to watch a game, and everyone's jumping around third quarter. The wrestlers on our team, we saw that as a place of torture. I mean, we would have to go there, run across the field, do buddy carries up the stadium and back down and across to the other side. We did that a ton of times. Um, bear crawls with a weighted vest, you know, backwards and, you know, up, up and down a ramp. Those are the first things that come to mind when I think of training. We did a lot of, you know, preseason training, get our cardio, get our lungs ready for just the, the strenuous training. And like Tony said, every day, just, it was like we just came out of a pool. We're just fully, <laughs> full on. So what did you guys have to say yes to and what did you have to say no to? A lot. I think just uh, comforts in general, uh, everyday comforts, eating whatever you want to eat, um, even my coach, I remember he took away our cell phones. We couldn't have a cell phone on our uh, away trips, on road trips, things like that. You know, our time, social, social life. Uh, even my grades, I think, suffered a little bit with uh, you know how much I could put in, into that. So yeah, sacrifice in general. I probably would have done a lot more skiing in the winter if I wasn't wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, we weren't supposed to ski <clears throat> in high school, but uh, we just didn't tell the coach about that. And no, we uh, had to say no to a lot of food, um, cutting weight and just watching your weight and being careful about what you eat. And I, I remember distinctly Thanksgiving, usually wrestling starts before Thanksgiving. And so uh, you're already working on cutting your weight and watching your weight. So Thanksgiving meal when everybody else is feasting, you're 
you know, just, my, my brothers and I actually, we would, we enjoyed, my mom thought this was torture, we were torturing ourselves, but when I couldn't eat an evening meal sometimes, and she's cooking wonderful food for the rest of the family, uh, I, we'd just come and smell it. We just loved it. Ah, oh, just, oh, it smells so good. You know, it's like, that was just like what we got to enjoy. So say no to that. Say, yeah, and a lot of the, 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 the hangouts and social life with the friends, you had to, had to be working out and uh, just being, being really careful about um, your, your health, making sure you're eating, eating well when you are eating. <laughs> so. so you guys are coaches, and you get young kids that come in and say, hey, I want to wrestle, let's do it now. What are some of the things that you, you give to the kids, like a plan? How do you help kids become a better wrestler? So for, during the off-season, um, one thing that we've been trying to get better at in Cameron is, is helping the athletes do a little more weightlifting. Because um, some of them, they know the moves fairly well, but uh, they just they need to be stronger. Um, and so on a weightlifting plan and, and different sports, you kind of utilize different muscle groups. In wrestling, it's a lot of pulling motions, and so there's some different weightlifting um, things that you can do that are focusing a little more on those uh, particular muscle groups that help with that. Um, but then also... G- guiding them in terms of better nutrition than maybe what, what we had uh, when we were younger. There's, there's more resources, more uh, you know, stuff out there available to help guide the athletes in, in managing their weight well and eating well and, and healthy. And, and sleep is obviously a big part of that too. So it's a holistic thing. It's just you can't just abuse your, your body and, and then think that you're going to go out and perform well. Yeah, and along those lines, with the physical, there's the mental side. I think of any sport, it's a, a big mental uh, game, you, kids get nervous. How do you deal with nerves? How do you have the right mindset in a tough sport? And so on our team, we do a lot of that every week. We, we deal with how do I get in the right frame of mind before my match? How do I have that confidence and base it on the truth of how much training I've done and to you know get in that, we call it a flow state where you're just going out there and having a great time, working hard, um, and enjoying you know what you're, you're good at. So. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Now, as Justin's walking away, I could probably jump on him. Here's one of the lines I say. The problem with wrestling is there's too many rules. So as he's walking away, I could jump on him. I'm taller than him. Maybe not stronger than him anymore. But, yeah, I never was stronger than him. But the wrestlers have rules they have to abide to. I don't know those rules. So in the first three seconds, I can guarantee I would surprise him, put him on the ground, woohoo! But after those three seconds, everything would change. Because he knows the rules. I don't know the rules. He's trained, I haven't. Let's look at this verse again. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has a value for all things. Have godliness as your focus. Have correct behavior, walking like Christ. Have the joy of Christ in your life. Be like Christ. We must train and train and train. We must have a training plan. The guys talked about food, sleep, workout, sweat. That's a lot of work to get where they could get to. For Christians, we must train and discipline ourselves. What are some of the things we do? We pray. We study the word of God. We have fellowship. We, after studying the word of God, here's a tough one, we read, not only do we apply God's word, but we must obey God's word. And we have fellowship. Our Christian faith and heritage 
is intended to be passed on to the younger generation. This training happens in a variety of ways here at our church. We have Sunday school normally at this time. That building's full of kids running around all over the place, and some of you are volunteers helping with that. We appreciate that. We also have adult Sunday school. We don't call it adult Sunday school. We call it adult Bible, adult discipleship groups. We have Soul Garage. We have Awana. We have Sunday sermons where you're getting trained. We have small groups. We encourage you to connect and be trained in those areas. Let's move on through verse 8. The benefits of godliness. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy thing that deserves full acceptance. This is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Training physically has some value. I like how it has some value, but not total value where godliness training in that has total value. The problem is, as in this picture here, we need to have a good balance. Some people train only for their muscles so they look good and they forget leg day. Maybe you heard about that. Don't forget leg day. When I was in Washington State, I was with a mountain rescue unit, and I realized (coughs) I needed to be fully trained in that area. To be a part of mountain rescue, I didn't need big muscles on top. I needed cardio and my legs. So every day when I was at the gym, I would just work on the Stairmaster nonstop until it burned and burned for hours. Because if I got called on a mission up in the mountains to rescue someone, I had to make sure that I could go, 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 and not stop, and my legs were ready. The problem is we think of physical training as important. It's got some value, but we cheat in our spiritual training. When a Christian trains themselves for godly living, they have the best of both worlds. They have the immediate benefits and also future benefits. The value of godliness has present benefits, but also eternal benefits. I love that. I love what it says in the middle of that too, that God's love is offered to all people, seen in the salvation, found in his son Jesus. But unfortunately, Not all believe and receive this great salvation. Salvation is for those who believe. Then finally, verse 12, the example of godliness. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So even though Timothy wasn't a kid, when we think of this verse, we think of, oh, this is a great one for Sunday school. Really, Timothy, they, they kind of guess he was about like late 20s was kind of what they determined how old he was. In fact, this word here in the Greek is used for anyone 30 or younger. And the problem was, he's a young pastor. And he, Paul's going, guess what? You're a young pastor. And the problem is, some of the older Christians might look at you and go, Man, that kid's young to be a pastor. Man, he's not qualified. Oh, he's not going to make it. He's not good enough. They're going to look down on Timothy. This would be hard for anyone entering the minister young. So what Paul is saying is, your character is what is important right now, not your age. And he says this, be an example, be a model, be a pattern of what that character should look like. And he gives a couple words. In speech, 
gentle communication, avoiding useless arguments and conversations. That's a sermon I should use in maybe about a year when we get to the political stuff coming up, right? Find what is the best thing to say, think about it first, then say it the best way. We need to train our mouths. In life, conduct. Make your walk the same as your talk. Do you hear that? Make your walk the same as your talk. Because many times, people can, especially for a young pastor, you can say all these things, but if outside the doors you're not living that, your talk is one thing and your walk is different, that's a problem. Make your walk the same as your talk. We represent Christ and your actions, if they're poor, can make truth hard to hear. In love, do it in love. Faith, learn to articulate it, understand the gospel message, and share it. I can't wait to get into the book of Acts as we talk about being a witness for Christ. And again, if you're interested in the apologetics conference coming up, please talk to Pastor Tony. And impurity, the integrity of life. So in summary, here's what I wrote down. To all here in the church, no matter your age, continue in your growth as a Christian. Get serious in your training for the benefits are both present and for the future. Be diligent in your training. So to help you remember this verse, we're going to have the kids song happen. All right. We did this song Wednesday night at Awana for some of you. So if any kids here would like to come up and help, you come on up and help. We learned some motions to it to help you remember it. And um, you can sit, go up. Oh, yes, Garrett, thank you. <laughs> it's going to be me and Garrett. Oh, yeah, come on up. Come on up, Miriam. All right, a few more. Awesome. So um, stand up with us, and we're going to, we'll teach you the motions. You'll learn it as you go. And let's remember this verse, commit it to memory.
we're going to still have Sunday school, even though we're in Family Celebration Sunday. You guys can... <laughs> Good job. <laughs> we have been studying the life of the prophets of Israel. Um, I came up without my paper, but that's... Oh, here it is. Um, Elijah and Elisha, out of the book of Second Kings, chapter 3. If anyone wants to follow along in their Bibles, you're welcome to, but it's highly edited because my age range is five to 11. But we have been talking about, do you remember stories about King Ahab? Was he a good guy? Well, today our story is about his son, King Joram. So we're gonna learn a little bit about him today. But first, I always like to start Sunday school with prayer. You pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving us the Bible and for teaching us about you through that Bible. Help us today with your Holy Spirit that we would learn what you have for us and help me to remember what you've given me to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first of all, King Joram was a lot like his dad. Was that good? Unfortunately not. But the other king in our story is named Jehoshaphat. And the cool thing about King Jehoshaphat is just as bad as we know about King Ahab, he was a good king. He even sent special teachers all around the country to teach out of the Bible, to help his people to know more about God. And one day, King Jehoram had a problem with the king of Moab. And he says, okay, Jehoshaphat, will you come with me? Once in a while, they helped each other out. He says, yeah, sure, I'll come with you. And so they decided what route they were going to take because they needed to go talk to Edom. And they started out towards Edom, and they stopped in Edom, too, and got the king of Edom to come with them and headed over to Moab. Well, you know, they took seven days to travel to Moab. In fact, the Bible says they took a roundabout way. And I don't think it's the kind of traffic circles they're talking about. But, <laughs> but they did take a longer way than they needed to. And at the end of that, seven days, they were almost to Moab but they were all out of water. They're in the desert and thirsty. No, the kings are thirsty. Their soldiers that are with them are thirsty. And they even had animals. They didn't have water for their animals. Well, King Joram, he was determined to blame God for that. He says, it's all God's fault. He brought us kings into the desert so that we'll die. Now, was it God's fault that they went into the desert? It was all Joram's getting that going together. Well, King Jehoshaphat, on the other hand, he said, oh dear, we're thirsty. Do you have a prophet of God that we can talk to? Maybe we can ask God for some advice. Now, is that the right way to go about it? Yeah. So he says, is there a prophet? And one of the leaders knew. None of the kings knew this, but one of the other leaders said, oh yeah, Elisha's here. He used to work with Elijah. Oh, Jehoshaphat said, that would be wonderful. I want to hear from Elisha. And so they went to Elisha. Now, as an aside, I wondered once, why was Elisha there? Obviously, the kings didn't know it because they had asked. And Joram wouldn't have liked him anyway. So God had already planned ahead to make sure Elisha was in the camp. I don't know how, but he was there. Isn't that neat how God plans ahead for us? So, they went to, King, to Elisha, and King Joram 
came up and Elisha says, what are you doing here talking to me? Why don't you just go talk to the, the prophets from all those idols your parents liked? But being a germ says, no, this is your God's fault. He brought us into the desert to kill us. Now, is that the right way to talk about God? Not the right way to talk to God's prophet either, is it? Well, finally, Elisha says, well, if I didn't serve the living God and have respect for Jehoshaphat standing here, I wouldn't talk to you. But let me see what God wants. And he asked for some music, and he sat down, and God gave him his message. And this is what God said about what they're going to do if they The Bible tells us, nobody's back there to turn on my picture for me. I'll grab my paper then. Oh, okay. <laughs> Elisha says, the Lord says, dig a lot of ditches in this valley. Do it because the Lord says, you will not see wind or rain, but this valley will be filled with water. Then you, your cattle, your other animals will have water to drink, and it's an easy thing for the Lord to do. Now, do you think that they were really interested in digging ditches after seven days of travel? And they're thirsty, they had nothing to drink. And, you know, I don't think they had steel-tipped shovels and they didn't have a, a big backhoe. That's what my husband would use if he had to dig a ditch. But they had to start digging ditches. And I think they must have had a plan. But all we know is they started digging ditches. No water came up in the ditches. They just had to obey. That was what God told them to do, is dig ditches. And it was probably hot and dusty. And all night long, they still didn't have water, and they were still thirsty. But the next morning, about the time of the sacrifice of worship time, the water came. It filled all the ditches. All the animals and the soldiers and the kings had all the water they needed. Isn't God great that he gives us what we need when we ask him? You know, even when it's our own fault that we get in trouble sometimes, it's okay, we can still go to God and ask him for help. But you have to remember, sometimes he gives us work to do. It's not just, oh, here's the water right here. It's dig the ditch for the water to land in. We also have to think about King Jehoshaphat. He's a really great example for us because sometimes we're in a situation where I'm a believer, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but the person with me that's also in trouble isn't. I can set an example by asking God for help in front of them and teach other believers, teach other people how believers can trust Jesus. So sometimes it takes courage to step out and trust God, doesn't it? Well, sometimes when we ask God for help, we have to remember he might give us work, just like they had to dig ditches. Sometimes our work, we might say, God, I need help with my spelling test you got to expect to study your spelling words. And then he'll help you remember them. And sometimes he might, you might say, oh, I, I need to pray for my friend. Do you know he'll help you pray for your friend and help you remember to pray for your friend? But don't just say, oh, I'll pray for you, and then totally forget about it. And sometimes God, the kind of hard work God gives us is what we have in John chapter 6. <laughs> there. Here is what I tell you who hear me. Love, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
and pray for those who treat you badly. Is that easy to do? Loving your enemies and being nice to people that hate you? Do you think if we know that we're supposed to do that and we ask God for help, he will help us? That's right. Even the things that he commands us to do, he then gives us the help we need to be able to trust him and to love him. So thank you for Sunday School today, and we'll be continuing our story next week. All right, would you stand as we do our last song?